It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. This episode of the GabFest contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gabfest for July 25th, 2019, the not exculpated edition. I am David Plotz of Atlas Obscuro, Washington, D.C. So exciting. Why is it exciting? Why is it exciting? Because in our sweat box of a studio. It's fine right now. Yeah, it's not well, right even now. Hot. He's just anticipating. It's because we just started. <laughs> yeah. it's, we have all three of us and just the combined intellectual heat that we're going to generate on the oh, show yeah. is going to we're going to we're going to cut weight for our wrestling matches later. We're going to be down 10 pounds each. So I have Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale. Hello, Emily. Hello. Hello. Why are you in Washington? I came to give a book talk and I stayed to tape the show with you two lovely people. Um, and John Dickerson of CBS 60 Minutes. John, why are you in Washington? I'm in Washington to uh, do interviews for my book and uh and write some of it at my old kitchen table. I cannot tell you how excited John is to do his interviews. <laughs> These, if if a quality of a book was based on the excitement of the author, author's reporting, this book is going to be the best book ever written. That is a good sign, though. Tell him, it means you're interested in your subject, well, which that, is not a given at this point uh, in a book process. That's totally true. And David, <laughs> tell them what the interview I was telling you that I'm he's, doing he's later like, today. John's interviewing somebody who's an expert in regulations. Um, he's so, but John was so excited. He, he started to some riff. I was not paying any attention, but he was going on and on, and I tuned out, and I was checking my email, and then I came back to it a few minutes later, and he was still talking about that I person. am eager to hear that riff later. Um, uh, but it's really true. I've, I, I, I've often said, no, I think it's you, you have to be able to live with a book in your head for as long as you're going to be writing it, or else you'll go crazy, which is why there are some books that I've chosen not to write, and this one is... I, I could do this book for the next ten years if I had the had the time. I'm sure, your publishers. Really yeah, I'm happy sure to that hear exactly. That. <laughs> um, anyway, it'll all be fine. Everybody's fine. It's all good. So, on a show, we're going to do a show on this week's show. Robert Mueller testifies to the House. Was it a bombshell or just a bomb? Then, did Democrats make a terrible mistake by pressuring Al Franken to resign? We'll talk about Jane Mayer's big New Yorker story about Franken's defenestration. Then there's a bipartisan deal in the works to raise the debt ceiling, avoid a government shutdown, and increase government spending. What is not to like? I'll tell you what's not to like. Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. And a reminder, GabFest listeners, GabFest listeners in the Midwest, Upper Midwest, Canada. Or visitors to visitors. said region. On Wednesday, September 18th, we're going to be live at the Fitzgerald Theater in St. Paul, Minnesota. First Twin Cities live GabFest. We will have also a pre-show cocktail hour. There are still tickets available. Go to slate.com slash live. They are going fast, though, so get your tickets now. Slate.com slash live. We want to see you on September 18th in St. Paul. Robert Mueller testified laconically before two House committees on Wednesday. This hearing had been much anticipated, anticipated really almost for years, as Democrats were excited to create the highest possible profile hearing about his report into Russian interference in the election and into the president's potential obstruction of justice and collusion. And it seemed clear that the primary purpose of this hearing was less about uh, fact dissemination or fact sharing than it was about the optics of it to attract an audience and create a dramatic, dramatic moment damning the president. So, Emily, in that sense, it was basically an utter failure for the Democrats, yes? Was it an utter failure or just like a kind of soft dud? I guess that's the debate this morning, right? Uh, the utter failure theory is that there was nothing new that emerged from this and no big moment of drama. Um, I didn't watch the whole hearing. I just watched various highlight compilations. And when you're listening, you know, there are a few moments, but... 
Mueller's tone is not particularly um, strong or dramatic. We can talk about whether he seemed kind of off his game um, to a degree that was unsettling for some people who've watched him for a long time. And it was mostly repeating allegations that have been made many times against Donald Trump. So if that was the measure, I don't think the Democrats succeeded. I'm not sure that's a fair measure, though. Yeah, it feels like this this hearing is falling into a question we've pawed over here uh, for years, it feels like now, which is, uh, is the standard of something, whether there was something revelatory uh, in specific or revelatory outside of a pattern we've come to expect, or is it important to talk about things at length in certain different forums because you ha- because you should keep concentration on things that um, should concern us, like uh, whether the president and his team were at least open to Russian interference in the election, that the Russians are interfering right now, that lots and lots of members of the president's team lied uh, sometimes when they didn't seem to have to, whether the president can openly... Um, tell his staff not to participate and engage with Congress, all of which is not new and isn't revelatory and came through in, a, as far as the show goes, in a, not a very exciting way. But um, I think that just back to what Emily said is none of that should really matter because the underlying facts of the case are still extraordinary. But then the question is, is a congressional hearing, anybody who schedules a congressional hearing for the purposes of putting on a show and doesn't get a show, um, you know, they shouldn't be surprised. And by the way, the show you're going to get is going to be a circus almost, uh, it's almost certainty. Well, pretty boring circus. Um, it, Where I, were what, the lions and the elephants? They what, did not well, there were elephants. <laughs> That's what the Republicans are there for. Mm-hmm. The, there were but, plenty of asses. But the, but the, the question, I mean, the I get your your very high minded point there. You know the purpose is, of course, that we should focus attention on it. But truly, the Democrats created this hearing because they wanted a show. Yes. They wanted a spectacle. It they was got a few the purpose little, was optical. The yeah, purpose was optical, was optical and they and got it, sort of like they got, lame sound bites. They got, they got some sound bites. They got very little. So but also, really? but wait, also, sorry, just to, on that point, which is it also to me reflected a seriously bad judgment on their yes. part because Mueller is a dreary, tight lipped uninteresting prosecutorial, you know, uh, uh, what's, I can't remember the word, but it's one of those words that they always use to describe Roman politicians. You know, he's very uh, dignified and perturbable. They were not going to get anything out of that guy. And he made it clear he didn't want to come. I was thinking yeah. of that word too, and then yeah. I couldn't remember what I think it's Stentorian loud though. Stentorian does mean what you said, David, which is loud and powerful. So I think of Stentorian as being, I'm thinking of more red, it's one of those R words. Anyway, I'll think of it. Okay. Uh, rectitude, rectitude. Uh, uh, we usually talk about Figure moral rectitude. rectitude. Figure of rectitude. Right. Yeah, that's all true. And he didn't want to testify, and there's that. But if they hadn't called him, wouldn't that have been strange in its own? Mm-mm. No one would have noticed. Dog didn't bark. I would have noticed. If he wasn't called. Yeah. But he had a 448-page report. Can't we go with that? I know, but that's part. So here, can we get a little bit into the substance of this? Because I'm yes. now even more bewildered. Okay, can- yes, we have a 448-page report, which is... In its conclusions, not that clear and self-evident what's going on, right? It makes this very, um, in some ways, strange decision not to indict the president, sort of hedges on whether that decision is because of the Justice Department's own policies or because of the underlying facts. We don't really emerge with more clarity on that point from this hearing. I mean, Mueller does at first seem to suggest when under Ted Lieu's questioning that the Justice Department's decision from the Office of Legal Counsel meant that he couldn't indict. And then he withdrew from that. And that was like a kind of deflation of the day, right? So there's that problem. Then there's the problem that what seemed clear to me from the hearing that I should have understood before, but it seemed clear was that Mueller's true cause for alarm is like the Russians tried to interfere with our election. Like huge threat to democracy. I wish he had said that in a more, you know, like crystal clear ring of alarms style, but that's the message. So if that's his biggest threat, and then he can see, because it was public, all this evidence of President Trump essentially encouraging this kind of interference in the statements he made about WikiLeaks, 
why isn't he more exercised? And why is he left the country in this kind of odd place in which we have evidence in the report that the president obstructed justice, but Mueller has refused to draw any conclusion about that, even though our attorney general, Bill Barr, did draw such a conclusion. So it's not against Justice Department policy to make any kind of conclusion. That's just not the case anymore. That was a line of questions about Barr that the Democrats didn't pursue yesterday, which seemed strange. And yet we're also not off the hook. Like we don't as a country feel like Trump was exonerated because Mueller made clear that he was not exonerated. So we have all this information that doesn't lead us to a clear either legal or political conclusion. And this is what prosecutors are not supposed to do, right, is is to just like create a whole lot of doubt about someone's guilt or innocence without settling the matter. And I can't understand. It's, it's as if Mueller in some ways was trying to avoid the error that Jim Comey made when he he started talking too much about the investigation of Hillary Clinton, but he's and yet seems to have done the same thing, which is a legitimate complaint I thought the Republicans had yesterday. And I can't fit all those pieces of the puzzle into a neat picture for myself in understanding what the special counsel thought his role was, like why he did what he did. And which is why, from a purely political standpoint, if you are Democrats and your intention was to create an optical moment, which I think David is right about. Um, first of all, that's crazy having watched any hearing take place in Washington because you know that <clears throat> it's going to turn into uh, Republicans attacking the witness um, and a and a fuzzying up of things. And I think the president has been successful by saying there was uh, that Mueller said there was no collusion and no obstruction because then what he's had what what. Uh, a lot of people, very smart people have said, here are the questions Mueller should be asked. Mueller should be asked, was there no collusion and, and no obstruction? So ask him that and get him to say that. So they did. Okay. So now the story is Mueller says there was no uh, obstruction and no collusion. That's playing on the president's turf. So some people will hear that and say, oh, well, you know, he said, she said. Instead of what should be at issue here, which is that the Russians interfered in the election and that the person who is constitutionally given the power to take care of America's national security didn't seem that interested in it. And didn't di- care at didn't all. Didn't care at all. Was, and like, in fact, happy had, to offer us up, actually. And had aides not telling him about Russian continued efforts because they didn't want to upset him, and then criticized the intelligence agencies repeatedly and recently for saying that the Russians were involved in the election. This is not a candidate who's trying to gain power and doing a bunch of things um, that you can excuse because it's a campaign, even though I would argue you shouldn't excuse uh, these things in campaigns. But nevertheless, this is a person who is constitutionally mandated to protect the United States and who was, instead of doing that, attacking his intelligence agencies who said this is what the Russians were up to. Now, that is separate and apart from anything having to do with uh, James Comey and how this all started and and any of the stuff that people want to bring up. It should have up. clarity on its own. That should have its own clarity. Instead, because the president said, Mueller said there was no collusion, no obstruction, he shifted the territory into something that people now think is debatable, which, by the way, isn't debatable because if you read the report, it doesn't say those things. So I think that the... Um, that in a, in fact, uh, this was a process that actually um, helps the president confuse what's in the report um, rather than focusing us on the substance of what's the report. And that was the decision of the Democrats to hold this hearing. Right. And but I, think I don't they think it's themselves. just the Democrats' fault. I mean, yes, sure, you can blame them. But it's also Mueller. This is what I'm like fixated on. Here is this figure, yes, of moral rectitude and institutionalism and patriotism. And he has left the country in the soup, like in a muddier position than it was. And he, this insistence that this extremely long and complicated and legally dense report speaks for itself when it clearly does not seems like a disservice. And then to come and not really want to talk and to seem kind of grudging and hesitant and to offer even less clarity, I just, it, I just don't get I it. I mean, a couple of points there. One is that, that one of the things that will, of course, go down as, as a as a real turning point in this is that Barr was able to Barr did simplify yeah, he and clarify didn't have any and gave a compunction dis- about that. And he described what he you know, the report that he read, which is not the report that was written, but he did a really good job of sort of creating a simple characterization that people were able to, you know, that defined the narrative. And so that was a very important, which Mueller never did because Mueller was behaving in this rectitudinous way. 
I also think like you did see Mueller slightly come to life when he was talking about the Russian interference. Like that was a point in which he, he did perk up. A he little. was he was concerned, and it is it. I, I you know the 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 tragedy of this is going to be that because this became a partisan, essentially a partisan issue, and it became a an issue around this president, and the president made it a you know a kind of make or break for him. We have lost the fact that we had this incredibly successful, comprehensive disruption of our political system and by the Russians, that, by the Russians, that it shaken the confidence, that it it sowed division, it peppered us with divisive propaganda, it you know possibly even threw the election to to the candidate favored by the Russian government, the candidate who incidentally had financial interests in in it, and there's been effectively no response, no concern, no crisis, no stand in defense, no protection of the not you know the electoral system of the electoral process of how we do it and it's an open invitation to any country in the world that wants to interfere they can do it it's an open invitation they can align themselves with particular candidates and it's you know it and it has completely or not completely but has significantly discredited the american electoral system in a way that is hideously damaging in the long term and that and republicans don't want that any more than democrats do really i mean like yes, the pa- but true they patriot but they can't figure out to do anything about the, it because right. it seems like it's playing into this narrative that's anti-trump right well it has entrenched patterns in uh it has quickened partisan patterns in politics right now in this really ugly way which is to say that you had the feeling yesterday in the hearing that republicans were essentially saying i WikiLeaks, nah, no big deal when in fact during the campaign, the consensus estimate of the not consensus, yes, the consensus estimate of all the intelligence agencies was that the Russians had stolen information, given it to WikiLeaks, and WikiLeaks was disseminating it. And then the candidate Trump said, "Go look at WikiLeaks." John, you're a longtime student of of Washington, of scandal, of politics. Why? So I think if I think if you had stepped back and said, "Here's the set of facts that we've learned." about Russian interference in the election, about the president's financial ties to Russia, about the the ways in which the presidential campaign tacitly accepted or sought, you know, didn't reject help from Russia, about the way that Russian interference acted, about the way the president attempted to quash investigation, fire people, suppress information, induce people to lie, uh, all, you know, discovered by a Republican prosecutor, an independent Republican prosecutor, um, I think you would say, wow, this is a incredibly devastating, what a shocking scandal. And this has surely shaken the foundations of the republic. And, and uh, you know, we would – what a – you know, this president has been impeached by now. He's resigned in disgrace. And yet we are – we essentially have a, a, a political when – when you look at sort of polls at least, no change at all from where we were at any other point in this history. Has had, this, is, this, can't, this scandal has not – changed a mind, shaken anybody that we can tell. Was that was that avoidable? Like was there some other way this could have rolled out? Why did it why was it why, if you're a Democrat, has this been had so little impact? Should we blame Fox News? Well we can blame all conservatives. You can blame Fox, you can blame you can blame uh, the mainstream media too, which covers things in the present moment um, rather than the things in their larger context. Yes. Um, I think you. I think you can blame partisan rallying, which means that if you believe two things, that what the Russians did and the encouragement of the Russians doing what they did was awful, but you also think that people all the way from uh, agents investigating this in the FBI who sent texts to each other about how unctuous Donald Trump was, you can believe that they were basically trying to undo a democratically elected process through their investigation. And that while you may think that what the Russians did and all these other things are bad, admitting those things out loud gives energy to the people who are trying, in your view, to undo a democratically elected president. And therefore, you're just not going to do it. Um, what keeps you, what keeps your feet to the fire is um, uh, Fox News. Um, and um, uh, and there was a great, there was a great quote, I think it was in The Atlantic, about a woman who was interviewed and said, I, I, I was surprised to hear that there was anything negative in the Mueller report because I'd been watching Fox News and it seemed all... News uh, to her. Yeah. So, uh, so that certainly is part of it. And the reason that matters is, is that that woman, multiplied by many thousands, is a voter who will support a primary opponent of an elected official um, in Washington. And then I think there's obviously overreach by people who thought Robert Mueller was going to deliver them from Donald Trump and turned him from the 
uh, nonpartisan prosecutor. Thank you, nonpartisan prosecutor into basically a tool of the, of the of the liberal wing of the Democratic Party. And maybe that was part of why he resisted speaking with more clarity. But everything about the political and media environment you just described suggests that his tactics were a failure and that by refusing to counter Bill Barr's like utter partisan clarity, he left us like with these really troubling facts and no clear way to act on them. All right. Last question on this. Does this, Emily, effectively mark the end of this investigation? Is this for all intents and purposes over? Yeah. I mean, the impeachment questions are going to continue. You and think? I, I mean, yeah, because I think some voters and some Democratic politicians are going to continue to raise them. And I guess they can keep trying to get some information and kind of like fight these side fights. But I think the country is going to be done with it. And I think that's like we should be done with it in the sense that it's time to just start thinking about whether you want Trump to be reelected or not. I mean, that's always been the most effective tool of fighting back if you think he shouldn't be president. If our elections are determined by the most partisan people who participate in primaries, there's a huge incentive for presidential candidates to keep talking about impeachment. Um, right. It's one of the people they did yesterday. Right. And it's one of the reasons people think that having the primaries uh, uh, so influenced by the wings of both parties tends to warp our politics. And this goes back to the beginning of the 20th century. So it's not necessarily a new thing. But, um, uh, but that's one reason it'll stay in the conversation. The second thing is that the people, when they're evaluating impeachment, say, you know, the reason impeachment was created, as Ben Franklin said at, at the Constitutional Convention, was to get presidents off the hook as much as get rid of bad ones, that it was would be a kind of good, smart process to evaluate the evidence, sort it through, and then say, you know what, there may be a cloud around this guy. That cloud should be dissipated because he did nothing wrong. Well, that is pretty to think so. But what we, I think, learned from this um, hearing is that we don't have a process for evaluating in a neutral way and using reason and critical thinking a set of facts. Uh, and so absent that, it seems odd to um, think that an impeachment process would not devolve into a total gooey, sticky bag full of wasted time. Gooey. A gooey bag of wasted time. That is a weird mixed metaphor. It sounds like something out of a Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Slate Plus members, you get bonus segments on the GabFest, other Slate podcasts for just $35 for your first membership in Slate Plus. Today on Slate Plus, what should you spend the rest of your summer reading, watching, listening to? We've got your, we've got your summer culture for you. Go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. Jane Mayer, who's, uh, I think listeners to this show know how much I admire her relentless, fantastic reporting on politics has produced the must-read political story of the moment in The New Yorker. It's a very long account of the fall of Al Franken, the Minnesota senator, and it asks whether he should have left the Senate following multiple allegations of sexual harassment, but primarily one allegation from uh, a woman who was on a USO tour with him some years earlier. The piece has mesmerized people, primarily on the left, and has really divided them. So, Emily, what did Mayer find in her reporting and and was Franken exonerated in your view by it? I don't think Franken was exonerated. I think, was he exculpated? <laughs> you know, I'm so excited that now maybe that word could like I try never to use that word in my writing because I don't think most people know what it means. Uh. Exonerated is much better uh. or like, you know, something that goes to innocence, right. I think. But anyway, maybe exculpated will actually enter the the common lexicon. No, I don't think John's it will. Like, forget it. I don't think it will. Yeah, but, um, it's but not, I remember when I first learned about too. the obligation to turn over exculpatory material. I can't remember what trial I was covering, but. Yeah. Like, they kept what talking the about hell is that? it's an obligation to turn over exculpatory material, and I was so jazzed that I finally knew what that meant. I thought I'd never have to know that word again, and here we are. What, yeah. Are you going to do the rest of the show with a toothpick in your mouth? Yes. John has a toothpick. <laughs> he's like he's like some kind of hayseed farmer. <laughs> I've become a dick in a tie. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, no, it's, you're a toothpick uh, guy. Maybe that's like a book writing. It is David Blight. Tool. David Blight. When I, I interviewed the him, the Civil War historian. Yes, the Civil War historian. When I asked him uh, about his writing process, he said he he writes with toothpicks. It's the only time he. Um, and Annette Gordon Reed was also on this yeah, uh, that was great a panel. Fascinating panel that I listened to, and they said a lot more interesting things than that. Well, so I'm glad but, you fastened on to the toothpick. Uh, well, no, but the toothpick is the thing that David raised mm-hmm. at the moment. I can give everybody the full hour I and twenty. His riff on how Americans can't handle tragedy and like we never talk about it. We try not to ever imagine ourselves as embroiled in a tragedy, and that's like our kind of original. I don't sin's not the right word. So nice, I can't believe you went back and listened to that. (laughs) I loved that panel. Yeah. Okay. All right. Can we? It was great. Anyway, he said he. So when I was writing the book, we had these toothpicks. I was like, huh? Let me try this. Now I'm like, I can't go on without them. Uh, anyway, okay, Emily. that's so, a little interlude. Ex- exoneration. Let's back. <laughs> Meanwhile, Al Franken, if only you'd had a toothpick. Um, yeah, I don't think she exonerated him. I think the big contribution of her reporting, which I am also a huge Jane Mayer admirer, was her exposing of how the original allegation against Franken from Leanna Tweeden was uh, politically motivated. That this was some... She had had this experience on this USO tour with Franken. There was this very damning photo of Franken, like, lecherously um, getting his hand somewhere near her breasts while she was sleeping. I just want to say I continue to find that photo disgusting, no matter how many men I love in my life tell me that, like, whatever, it's just, like, a little prank. I just, she was sleeping. It grosses me out. But the context that Jane adds, which is not, uh, this is not exculpatory, but um, ding, ding, ding. We should have a little bell that goes off every time you use the word exculpatory. (laughs) Yeah, everyone's going to be really excited Um, about that. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like a procedure, though. Somebody's going to be like. (laughs) Come on. Yes. (laughs) We've already done this. Yes. I mean, we won't need anesthesia, but anesthesia, but it will be a little exculpatory. Um, Anyway, uh, is that the the point was that there was a long-standing skit that had gone on at the USO in which a doctor p- pretends to examine someone, so that the picture seemed to be a pantomime of the skit that they had done together on stage and that Franken had done in previous. So it just puts context in it, which is what the whole piece is about, which is how do you add context for the purposes of adequately evaluating a, a set of facts to then make your conclusion, not necessarily being exposed but just, hey, here are facts, and shouldn't you make a decision once you have all the facts? Which in the case of that picture, I thought was was interesting, because as you say, the reaction to the fix- image itself is quite extraordinary. But then when you learn that this the was context. actually the context. It's yeah, a le- and he didn't write the skit just for her. And this uh, image and this story had been basically like being shopped around in conservative circles for years. They didn't bring it out when he was running for Senate. Probably it would have been better for him if they had brought it out then because probably in 2007, no one would have cared, right? But um, to Sean Handy's disappointment at the time, they held on to it. And then when they brought it out, right, at like a crucible moment for the Me Too movement, it did have all the impact that... Um, that the people behind this were hoping for. And so I thought all of that was important. And the context made me mostly think that, you know, all along with Franken, the question was whether his past as a comedian was going to come back to haunt him. And he tried so hard to have that not be the case. But in the end, it did. And I think that context is meaningful for understanding that photo, much as I still uh, don't want to look at it. The problem. What do, you, wait, what do you mean when you say you think that context is important? That, that he, there's a kind of that when you're in entertainment, he's like there's a lot of play. He's playing a role. It's a. I mean, sort of like you know we, we are on the do. show. Yes. Yeah. Well, that, we don't play roles. Well, I'm no, not playing a role. No, no, but, but, anyway, but that, you're, yes. that you're more you're doing something which isn't like yes. your and normal behavior. When you're a comedian, for God's sakes, your job is to yeah. push boundaries, and often sex comes into that. And they're all so some of the scolding of Franken that I've been hearing from feminists in the last week as they basically reject exoneration and push back against Jane Mayer, it gets kind of scoldy, like, in their judging of various things he said about, you know, like, leching after cheerleaders on the USO tour. It just, it just, I think there has to be space for people to be frank about sexuality in ways that are not, like, 100% towing the feminist line. And that is part of what was going on here. So I thought all of that was really important and valuable. The problem for me is that there's seven other right, women. Right. And I thought Mayor's handling of those stories, especially when you start to read um, 
other people saying, hey, wait about what about this was incomplete. Yeah. And I still think there's a legitimate conversation. And I want to hear what you guys think about whether Franken should have gotten his Senate ethics investigation as his due process and whether his punishment was proportional. But I just still feel uncomfortable with the way in which the New Yorker story, like the two accusations that bug me the most among those seven women are that he was like putting his hands on people's asses taking photos. And like Mayor sort of got those got the least attention. And it sounds like from this reporter at HuffPo, Zachary Roth, who'd reported one of those stories that one of those women decided not to talk to Mayor. And so then it's like her story has disappeared from this narrative. And that didn't seem so good to me. Other important context to, to remember here is that the Roy Moore case is um, is going on. Campaign. And a campaign is going on. Right. And so Democrats have an interest in um, getting rid of Ed Franken so they can keep the focus on Moore and win in Alabama. Right. And there's a Democratic governor in Minnesota and the person who was report, appointed to replace Franken, perfectly adequate senator who won re-election easily. Tina and Smith. it's a woman, Tina Smith. Uh, right. Impossible so, to remember. So right? Matt Iglesias wrote an interesting piece basically saying that Franken was right to resign. That was the best thing for the Democratic Party. It was in line with Franken's own image as a dutiful public servant. And that it is a mistake for Franken to now try to kind of gin up doubts and opposition about all of that. I thought that was really interesting. I think the political case is correct when you're thinking about this from the point of view of the Democrats. I I think that's right. I also think it's a little much to expect Franken not to, like, ever speak again about this when he does feel like he was wronged. And maybe that maybe you don't agree with him, but I don't think he has some obligation to stay silent. So I have so many thoughts about this. First of all, I want to go back to the grabbing the ass of women. It's like. I'm a 49-year-old man. I've stood behind women in photographs for my entire life. I've managed never to grab one. It's not that hard not to grab someone. Have you noticed a thing with photos that's happened in the last year? Because I've totally noticed this. Nobody Nobody grabs your ass anymore? No. (laughs) That has never happened to me. And if it did, I would be really distressed. But anyway, no, nobody wants to touch anyone. Like now the photographers are begging you all the time. I always am like, oh, God. I know. I don't like the touching either. But I feel like now. I like the touching. Well, right. You do. (laughs) Right. We disagree about this. But like I think that. There's a way in which now people are doing this hover thing with yes. their arms, right? <laughs> anyway. Well, and there's also okay. uh, particularly for men who are uh, who are asked to be in a photo with a single woman. There are you yeah. can see yeah. their faces yeah. freeze. They're like, shit. Maybe someone could photograph me from the back yeah. to be really clear that like there is. No, it's a like seven angles, between, like a, a exactly. top angle. We're like, gonna get a drone I picture. I want to be clear. I did not touch her. Not in any way, which I, uh, yeah, anyway, it's, it's, but, but yes, right. Yeah. It's not like it's okay or like right. shruggy to go around right. doing that. On the other hand, I also think like the lines about him, you know, his, him, uh, his carnal lines about the cheerleaders, like what Whatever. the cheerleaders are there. That's like, that's the right. point Everybody, of cheerleaders is yes. to be lusted after. And like, we all lust after yeah. Like that's yeah. a part of life. It's yeah. okay to yeah. be a and little bit honest about um, that. All right. But I want to wait. Okay. There was a point I wanted to make about, uh, I think politicians, there's this weird way in which politicians, unlike entertainers, uh, it's very hard to redeem them because politics, it's kind of a binary state. You're in office or you're not in office. Right. Right. But what about the idea of like a censure, a letter of admonition? That's not the right word. Admonition. Admonition. Oh, that's a word. Okay, good. So so for Franken, I think your point that he should be allowed to speak up and make his case, it's a really fair one. Because if you're Aziz Ansari or Louis C.K., you do get this way in which you can Creep back. Creep back. And you can creep back into – you can't creep back maybe to where you were. I'm sorry, maybe, I hope, is going to. But you can't creep back to where you were. But you can come back and there are stages. If you're a politician, it's like, you know, you're kind of either or. And Franken could run for Senate again, I suppose. He could do that. But it's hard. He – you you either – he lost Exiled his political career as far as A hundred percent. A hundred percent. And for something which is – you know, maybe he should have lost 70% of it. But there is no 70% right. in politics. Right. There's only 100%. Have. Yes, yes. I, One of the many things that was interesting about Jane's piece was the level of detail and work she had to do to really capture the fine gradations of all of these different instances. And we were talking earlier about whether there is a venue to um, properly handle the Mueller material and uh, and 
you can't imagine that there is in politics in America today. And in, in uh, Jane's piece, uh, I had that feeling over and over again, which is how would these details be looked at by a sort of fair-minded group of people in order to render a decision? It just seems impossible. Um, but I think what in telling this story, what she was doing was was in the next generation, I thought it was interesting that somebody saying that essentially his case, and maybe this is what Matt was saying, is a necessary corrective for a series and long history of abuses by men, of women. And and it's not fair it all got unloaded onto him, but, but that's what happened. That's what happens. Yeah. And, and, um, and that can all be true. It can also be true that if there was a Republican governor of Minnesota, the Democrats would have figured out a yeah, way to correct. Yeah. Them. Right. And we should talk about Gillibrand and the backlash or not backlash and all that in a minute because it, there are now some Republicans, oh, sorry, Democratic senators who called for Frank Zeptan, who now say he should have. I have no patience with those people. I have no patience for them. I think it's it's like virtue signaling, weak, hypocritical. They they like went with the mob when it was the time to be in the mob, and now they're like, oh, I don't, I I want credit for judiciousness. I was, I'm not, you know, I've learned, I've learned, I'm wisdom, right? Who really is like taking it on the nose for having kind of led the charge. But good for her, like you know, she believed it. It's like like, it's fine. Like kind of peeling away from the peeling away from her. I think is it's so unattractive and feeble and like just live with your principles and say like we did this and and don't and I hate that. So I the hate question that then hypocrisy is, and weakness. Um, so, so the question then is, is there a second generation or third generation of this story, not the Frankenstein in particular, but um, how do institutions handle uh, a case where a person behaves in a way that is unpleasant uh, bad, but shouldn't get them the maximum sanction. Has I mean, it- in most fields, we have ways to do that. You admonish people, you dock their pay, mm. you make them take a leave, they come back. Like right. there are all these gradated punishments, no, I mean, and in I think. Life. Yeah, well, I mean, maybe the Democrats or the Senate could have designed something like that for Franken. And the part of the story that I'm the most torn about is the lack of the investigation by the Senate and the Ethics Committee. So I absolutely wanted them to investigate in the moment. That seemed like the most important thing. They're supposed to be a mess and dysfunctional, but that was an opportunity to have a publicly conducted investigation of Me Too-like allegations that we could have seen how it went. So, and and all this reporting Jay Meredith should have come out yeah. then as part of it. So that I'm clear about. What I can't decide is whether to blame Franken, who resigned before the investigation, or the kind of the democratic mob of senators who forced his hand would similar facts about a senator lead to should they lead to a different outcome than than with franken i care the most about the process and the lack thereof because the scariest version of this are utterly false allegations that run wild and that in our you know incredibly quick to judgment without a lot of investigative reporting news cycle just take off and they start taking people down in this way that's very unfair that both leads to a backlash against the really necessary reckoning and also like we lose good people who don't deserve it and that's the part that scares me about how this all went down i'm interested in the sort of relative response of the parties to this so do do you guys think that for the democrats is this all just some long drawn out atoning response to having allowed Bill Clinton. Yes. And it is. Yes. Why? And by the way, is that response on- ongoing? Well, interestingly, it is not affecting Joe Biden's candidacy very much, even though the handsy accusations against him. Now, there it doesn't quite rise to the level. And I should say, like, I don't. The, you know, if there was a continuum here from like Harvey Weinstein and Charlie Rose to Al Franken, he's still on a much like less. He's like culpable. half a Franken. Yeah, whatever. And and Biden, Clinton is I like think, Clinton is like two thirds of a Weinstein. Yeah, exactly. Or maybe he's like a three quarters of a Weinstein. Right. But I do think it's all about the I mean, you can't avoid the political calculus that gets made in these different situations. Like Franken was expendable. It was Roy Moore moment. Biden less expendable, and it's sort of like the boil's been well, lanced. Do, why do you, John? Why are the Republicans? Why have why has personal morality like completely vanished as a thing for Republicans? It is weird that it is so completely gone. Well, uh, well, and we're in our third topic. We're going to talk about fiscal responsibility being completely <laughs> gone. It's it's it, uh, I'm wrestling with it because uh, for me the the first fact that comes back is having covered 
Republicans and conservatives for so long, the number of speeches and people I've interviewed who've talked about this issue um, and personal morality and its role in public life uh, and it being a disqualifier, um, per- particularly on marriage, you know, but I think it it's it is a version of what was said earlier that if uh, Minnesota had a Republican governor, uh, people wouldn't have been so concerned that if Bill Clinton um, hadn't been an incumbent uh, Democratic president. Um, and remember, there were there were a lot of there was a lot of blind eye turning when Clinton was uh, the Democratic nominee in 1992 um, by uh, Democratic women. Um, so. Uh, I think it's a version of the same symptom, which is basically power. Well, but also don't you think like when you hear some of the evangelical leaders talk about President Trump, they say God put him in this role to help us. He's the vehicle. And so it doesn't Uh, matter. And also they have some notion of redemption, which he's not actually Uh, provided any evidence of. But that's the line. I don't know. I guess. I mean, I would find that more um, Fulfilling if the feelings and the pollings among evangelicals about refugees was a little more um, uh, in line with the way I read the Gospels. Um, mm-hmm. So that if you really were taking the Gospels seriously and the um, and the instructions about how you're supposed to treat the least among us. Uh, and you were, and you lived the word. You would be on the border helping those people, and you would be prostrate on the ground when you hear about sixteen-year-old boys dying on a toilet from the flu. You would be incapable of ex- uh, finishing your days because of that was happening. So, it, it seems to me there are a cluster of issues for those um, who have talked about things in one way, and then now policy and behaviors are. Um, are being allowed that they used to be against. So I so if it were just about the morality piece, uh, um, I could I could m- maybe take add a little more weight to that idea that he is um, you know God acts and has instruments that are imperfect. But I think there's a more there's a broader um, deeper there's a deeper thing going on here. This episode of the Gap Fest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura frames in the notes that I have here says moms like Aura frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an Aura frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her aura frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an aura frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Congress and the administration are on the brink of agreeing to a massive budget deal that would expand domestic and military spending, expand the budget deficit by a lot, and raise the debt ceiling through July of 2021. This deal will essentially take off the table the possibility of a government shutdown or a government default this summer or really during the Trump presidency, and also take budget fights off the table until the next administration. So uh, I think the one theory of the case is well, you know, it's good. The, the, we have a deal. It was bipartisanship. It was worked out between Congress and Treasury Secretary Mnuchin. And, 
you know, everyone got something of what they agreed to, what they wanted, and there's no risk of a catastrophic default, and that's all good. Another theory is, man, this is just uh, borrowing for the future, raising the national debt, like having no sense of fiscal responsibility. Also, if you're a Democrat, it's just put the problem on to the next administration and possibly a Democratic president who's going to have to deal with Republicans hammering him or her when they're president. Emily, is it a good deal? I feel like everything you said is true at the same time. I don't understand. Well, I wasn't there negotiating, obviously, but one wonders whether it would have been possible to push this to 2022, say, because it's a big gift for the Trump administration and Republicans not to have this fight again during Trump's presidency. And so one does wonder whether the Democrats could have gotten more in terms of the timing and this notion that like McConnell won't use it as a sword against the right, next, in 2021. Like, forget that's just, <laughs> oh, yeah. I, like, so the idea that anyone that? what idiot said that? Say who things. said that? I don't remember. I saw but that attributed in some story. Like, I was like, what? Who? What? I know. It's just like <laughs> did, Lucy and the Mitch McConnell's man. wife say that? Yeah, precisely. So that bugged me. I this question about fiscal responsibility, I have does it matter? I mean, it's so on the one hand, it seems crazy to imagine that the United States continuing to pile up all this debt does not make us vulnerable. Like, I just believe that in my bones. I know it's not the same thing as balancing one's personal checkbook, but like, it can't be completely divorced from reality. And yet there is increasingly this um tendency, including among some economists, to shrug off debt and to imagine that we are in some special status as uh, the world's superpower and the world's currency and the world's whatever else, that like we can amass all this debt infinitum without distressing our own economy in the future. I don't really believe it, but it is it's tempting and it's definitely adding to the sense that like nothing that important is at stake here. Three Reaction. Let's see if I can just limit them to three. One is everybody's everybody's congratulating themselves about having pulled this off and bipartisanship and all that. But it's not that hard in Washington to get everybody to spend money on their priorities. So that's kind of and by the way, still to only to to claim as a as an achievement, simply doing your job, which is keeping the money flowing to the government is pretty small beer because what you're supposed to do is through collective action, tackle the biggest problems facing the uh, country, not the self-inflicted wounds you keep giving yourself. That's the first point. The second point is when people say that the laws um, of economics have been repealed, they may be right. (laughs) It has often been the thing they say right before everything goes to hell. Um, so before right. the mortgage back, before the Great Recession, 2000, 2009, people oh, said, you know, risk has been forever. Yeah, housing prices always go up. Risk has been squeezed out of the market by these cool derivatives that hedge everything against everything else. So you're not going to have massive shocks to things like um, and, um, you know, uh, General Sherman said, what did he say? Something like um People who think that war can be made easy are, you know, usually disappointed by vast destruction. And there's an there's an economic analog to that, which is that um, that the certainty about the elimination of risk and and um, is is usually a, a warning sign. So, because the big problems are still there, which is the interest on the debt, the um, inflation, uh, healthcare inflation, and the aging. Um, population and the and the promises that have been made to that aging population. So that is a problem. Then the third thing is um, having gone and spent, again, so many years of my life at speeches and at conferences and in committee hearings about fiscal responsibility, it feels as quaint and small reading about this budget deal, those things in the past feel as quaint and out of touch as the Be Kind Rewind stickers you used to put on um, VHS cassettes. Like, it it, it was just, but they used, to, there was so much time was spent on fiscal responsibility. And now, basically, everybody's congratulating themselves for just totally blowing it off. And gee, and, if only we'd reached this conclusion given a bigger stimulus after the Great Recession, like maybe that would have really helped the country recover yeah. much faster. Well, exactly. Well, right. Exactly. Um, and uh, and then also the, the f- other fascinating thing here is that, and this is 
not really, but this is only, I guess, social, slightly associated, which is, and I'm sorry, this is number four, is that the tax cut, which is wildly unpopular and which people think, even by the Republican National Committee's own polling, think all the benefits went to the wealthy. Because they did. Um, nobody seems to be penalizing the, the president's best scores are on his handling of the economy. Um, which well, again is the economy is humming along, and so like that's he, you know. One of the one of the things yeah. I found most interesting that one of those studies that we were reading is the this notion that if you look at the difference in economic growth uh, and the the economic growth that that has happened in the Trump presidency and also has happened in previous Republican presidencies, there's a huge amount of it that is just extra government spending that happens during those presidencies because Republicans, when they're Democratic presidents, act like, oh, fiscal responsibility is really important and they restrain government spending. And then when they're Republican presidents, they don't act that way. And it's, there's this automatic sort of Republican president stimulus that happens. And you get half a point added to GDP growth every time. And you get rid of all this sort of fiscal responsibility and you get hike deficits, but they don't talk about it. Um, and so th there's this there's this kind of cheat code that Republicans have for goosing the economy, which is they'll just spend when they have the White House and they won't spend when they don't. And it's that's a bummer. The John, I thought those are those are four perfect points. I I wonder if if so obviously McConnell has used the debt ceiling against Democrats in the past. He will use it against them if there's a Democratic president in 2021. Should Democrats who don't believe in using it probably as a weapon, but should they have used it as a weapon anyway? Because it's going to be used against them. Or was there something they could have done where they could have held out for a permanent end to the debt ceiling? They could have said, okay, we'll do whatever deal you want, but it has to come with a permanent end to this. Right. Or at least a few more years, right? Even if you weren't going to do the permanent end, because I do think there's an argument for that, but um, maybe that would have been a heavier lift. I, I, yeah, the not getting, it does seem like 2022 or 23 would have been a better year to pick than 2021. I mean, again, it's easy for us to say, but it is like a big, a big gain. Can I bring up something else that I, I, I realize this? I, so the big demand Republicans have is that we continue to beef up military spending. And that seems to remain a part of the Republican ethos, even though there are now much more doubts of military intervention among Republicans than there used to be. I don't really get that. Like, when does their when does Trump's um, disinterest in, you know, but he likes having the military. Know, he he doesn't want to use it. He doesn't want to. Wait, but it's a little weird. We're like building a, a lot of toys. It's super I, wasteful and yeah, pointless. I, I, well, I, there are th I think there are three things on the military side. And this is the military You're spending. You're going to have three but not four on this one. <laughs> the military side you know, is spending is interesting because it, it increases the size of the coalition who might support this for the president. And it is the sugar that makes the medicine go down to the extent that anybody's upset about fiscal responsibility on the Republican side. There's like one or two senators who seem to still be griping right. about that. Um, Someone named Lankford from yes. Oklahoma seemed unhappy. Um, uh, but you obviously, with military spending, you have the fact that it's spread around the country, and so everybody wants military spending in their district. Second thing is that there's been, because of the sequestration, which, by the way, is a part of the story as well, which is that in 2011, the great achievement was getting these uh, – sequester caps put uh, on the budget that were supposed to be so painful that it would force a reckoning from the Democratic president about uh, fiscal responsibility. So that obviously t turned out not to have worked at all. And what uh, people who um, care about the military say is, but the caps on military spending so hampered the military that it led to things like planes not being able to be repaired and all kinds of other things that actually hurt readiness. And so there are people who are not um, Donald Trump fans who believe that, A, this money will allow the military to kind of operate where it should be, which isn't to say that there's not waste in the military, but that given the way things are at the moment, the money is necessary and needed. And also, there is a view about deterrence through strength with countries like China, and also now that money needs to be spent on figuring out how to both propel cyber attacks and how maybe to launch a few. Um, you need lots of money to hire people. Maybe maybe you don't need that much money, but, but that there are threats. Look, they're always going to find new threats to spend money. I don't mean to suggest that um, this isn't a part of that same old thing, but in talking to defense hawks who are no fans of Donald Trump's and, and they seem to think this is this is necessary money. Um, Maybe the military could go build some bridges and some like railroad infrastructure. 
If we just called it military spending, yeah. maybe we could suddenly have infrastructure week Can, actually mean something. One of Wall, the, like walls on the southern border. One, one other fast thing <laughs> is that the best time to deal with fiscal responsibility is when the economy is in yes. its biggest yes. humming period, which is yes. now. So yes. that's even more amazing that there's no in, interest in fiscal responsibility at, at the time. Because yeah. obviously when the economy is weakened, that's when you need... You want stimulus. Yeah. All right, let's go to cocktail chatter. Weirdly, it did not turn out to be nearly as sweaty in here as I thought. It's because so I'm here. Yeah. I'm cooling. You're cooling a cucumber. But I think it's because we all had our kind of very cool cucumber gin fizzes as we were doing the show. We did. <laughs> I remember that. So, Emily, what is your the gin fizz that you will be talking about at your fizzy so cocktail party? I have been following with fascination the news about Amendment 4. This was a ballot initiative passed in Florida to, to restore... Wait, but I have good news today. It, to restore the vote to, um, I believe, 1.4 million people was the original claim, people who had um, were former felons. And then, of course, uh, a couple months ago, Florida's Republican governor signed legislation that essentially imposed a poll tax on these folks. They were going to have to pay back all their fines and fees before they were allowed to register to vote. And Florida has just astronomical sums of money that it charges people in the forms of these fines and fees. And so it just seemed like it was undermining the wonderful democratic process of Amendment 4. So hark, in Miami-Dade County, the elected state attorney, the public defender, and the court system has decided that they are going to let people vote. They've essentially decided to read this bill as only requiring you to pay the fines and fees that are on your sentencing document, which apparently is much more limited and much more likely to have been paid off already than all the other associated who knows what. And so as long as this prosecutor is not going to prosecute and the court systems believe this is a proper reading of the statute. It seems like these folks in Miami-Dade County should be able to vote after all. Um, so props to state attorney Catherine Fernandez-Rundle, who has, is part of this deal, a key part. And hey, if this works, then it seems like it could be a model for other cities with progressive prosecutors in Florida. There are a bunch of those folks. Uh, and it's just a really good example of local government pushing back against state officials. You know, we'll have to see whether it holds up in the courts, what happens next, how to notify all these people that they really are eligible to vote. That's going to be a big task for the advocates on the ground. But um, it's a, a piece of good news. Right. In but the right. But only I mean, just yes, that's a, it's a piece of good news, but only because there's this absolute abomination, which is that the the state legislature took a Yes, a voter a big, initiative that people had that one had idea that it was it was very clear, intent. and they completely yes. gutted it and screwed it up. Right. To, Although there is this other ca political cast to this, so in Miami-Dade County and some of the other cities in Florida that might be likely to go this route and try to make it easier, those are where the voters are who tend to vote for Democrats. Right. Those are like places with more of those people, and so if it turns out that what Florida ends up with is a strictly enforced gutting of Amendment Four in its rural areas and and a healthy, vibrant vote registration drive, which turns out to be allowed in its cities, that is going to make this amendment have a more blue effect on the state than it would have otherwise. But you know, I mean, I'm like several steps the down. The state legislature is now going to change the law. They're going to go back and be like, this this doesn't work. The only thing that counts is this. That's totally possible. We'll see. Bet. We'll see. Um, John, what is your chatter? Uh, my chatter, chatter is uh, <laughs> short and sweet, which is uh, an irregularity for me. Um, I listened to the Jane Mayer piece on Autumn, um, which is a great app that um, basically reads articles from The New Yorker, New York Magazine, The Atlantic, Esquire, lots and lots of other things in the most pleasing narrative voices. It's like Audible, but for articles. And so um, particularly for those of us who are challenged by reading anything on digital devices. My New Yorker actual magazine was in New York. It's just a, like, there's no way I could have gotten through her piece as pleasantly as I, if I'd been reading it on a digital device, because I would have kept getting interrupted and all that. Anyway, so it was this nice, soothing, lovely narrated voice of the piece. The only downside is when you want to highlight something, you're screwed. But um, Certainly they'll develop a yeah. hack for that. It'll uh, be like, Siri, please highlight 
that anyway, last I sentence. downloaded it ages ago and hadn't used it, and a f- uh, friend of the show reminded me of it, and I've been pleasantly uh, enjoying it. So I encourage everyone to go get Autumn. Autumn. Uh, and it's uh, oddly spelled, or at least I think so anyway. The app should be searched for A-U-D-M. Okay. Uh, my chatter is a follow-up to a chatter. A few weeks ago, I asked you, dear listeners, for recommendations of for ways that I could spend my time physically and usefully. And you've sent so many wonderful recommendations. Maybe actually I'll lose you one day, just kind of run through so many of the excellent ideas you had for me. But one of the ways was a, a listener, CAFS listener in Pennsylvania, has a farm, an organic farm in rural Pennsylvania, and invited me to come work on his farm. And I went last weekend. I'm going back next weekend and hopefully again the summer, just one day of work. And I recognize there's something ludicrous in this. And in fact, some 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 people on Twitter called me out for this. But I respect the uh, respect the game. But I just want to say, like, I put in a day's work at this farm. It was the hardest day's work I've ever done um, by far. Nothing I've ever done is remotely close. It was incredibly hot. It was this, over the hot weekend. It was exhausting. It was sweaty. It was dirty. I smell of onions still um, from all the onions. I, I sniff, sniff. I, uh, my hands, like even a week later, really smell of onions. It was unbelievably satisfying. It was a chance to meet interesting people from totally different backgrounds than me. The people I was working with were Jamaican men on temporary agricultural seasonal visas, and they work so hard and they do it day after day for wages that wouldn't be a starting salary at the most junior job in any office in in Washington DC. Um and so it's a cliche and it like reeks of 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 sanctimony and sentimental sanctimony at that to praise the virtue of people doing manual labor but I it, it's unbelievable like the amount of work that the, these people are doing in these fields to bring us the food that we eat is stunning and it's like you know it 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 is it is easily forgotten easily not seen and uh, I just, you know, want to thank, thank and praise um, that work. So I will do it, even though it's it's uh, it's sort of ridiculous to do it because I just was so I was so incredibly impressed and admiring of 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 the work that these men were doing. Um, we also, of course, are getting your great listener chatters. You are sending us your things that you're chattering about, the works of culture, the things that you read on the internet, articles uh, that you're talking about at your cocktail parties, and you're tweeting them to us at, at, Slate, at Slate GabFest, and there's so many good ones this week, um, but, but in honor of, of the Apollo 11 mission, the, the, which has now landed 50 years, we had our 50th anniversary of its return this week, uh, Yoni Schenker sent a tweet thread from Mary Robinette Cowell about peeing in space and pooping in space and it is so funny it's just about all that was totally hilarious i loved yeah. it it was amazing it's a, and one the perfect the, level of detail yeah the per, so the what would the the kind of what what stimulated this uh, from mary robinette cowell was the idea that uh, when the space program started one of the reasons why they they didn't let women in was like they're like oh it's going to be problem you know they're all they're they're how are they going to pee in space it's going to be it's going to be a total mess and she points out that actually the problem that they hadn't solved the problem for men and she just goes through time just episode after episode after episode of men and the problems they have peeing and shitting in space and it's so incredibly funny and vivid and they really hadn't it was a problem they really had not solved and it's great so I strongly recommend that Twitter thread. That is our show for today. The GabFest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. Melissa Kaplan engineered the show today. Gabriel Roth is the editorial director of Slate Podcast. June Thomas is the managing producer of Slate Podcast. You should check us out on Twitter at, at SlateGabFest, Facebook.com slash GabFest. Uh, I think we have a Slate.com slash GabFest. I think stuff happens there. And you should come to our live show in St. Paul, Minnesota on September 18th. And you can get tickets for that at slate.com slash live. For Emily Bazelon, John Dickerson, who I am so happy to be in a room with, I am David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We will talk to you next week where we won't be in a room together. Sadly, sad, sad. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? So, summer, a chance to catch up on great culture 
that you missed during the year, perhaps if you have some vacation chance to, you know, read something lighter because it just feels like you should read some, read something lighter, uh, chance to, to, um, you know, trash yourself up on television as people like me do. Uh, and so we're going to talk about some of our favorite summer culture and what we're reading, what we're watching, and uh, maybe we have useful recommendations. So anyone want to start? I'm really into the show Years and Years, which is jointly produced by the BBC One and HBO. And most of it, though not all of it, has aired in the United States. It's this kind of raucous family drama that take place in the, takes place in the near future and weaves in international... GabFest fans, that was just a teaser. To hear the rest of our Slate Plus conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFestPlus to become a Slate Plus member today. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.